Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Hey, hey, everyone. First, I'm not sure that I've actually made the announcement yet on the podcast. But before I begin today, I wanted to let you all know that on June 1st of this year, I welcomed my third beautiful daughter into this world. We call her Love and she joins big sisters Grace and Joy and everyone is happy and healthy. I haven't been as active on social media lately due to my new mommy duties or my additional mommy duties. But if you follow me on my personal Instagram, you can snag a look at my baby girl. My Instagram handle is Military Margot, and Margot is spelled M-A-R-G-O-T. I also need to give a huge shout out to everyone who has been so kind as to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast. We just hit 1,000 reviews on Apple, and that is amazing. To be honest, I've dreamt of this moment since I began the podcast, and I am so grateful for all of my listeners. If you haven't already done so, I would greatly appreciate you leaving five stars on Apple. If you have some extra time, you can also leave a few words. And listen, it doesn't have to be anything crazy or long. It can literally be five stars with a statement saying, how you doing, girl? (laughs) It really only takes 15 seconds to click five stars and it truly helps other listeners find the show. All right, enough with the announcements. On with the show. Recently, I have been on a serial killer kick, and it appears from the download numbers that the True Crime Army is really digging this summer of serial killer series. So with that in mind and seeing as it is still summer, I am continuing in that same direction. But this week, I am taking you to a place known for its Christmas spirit and rigid winters. And while many military personnel would love to be stationed in this state, if given a choice, people may not want to be stationed at this particular base because it's not densely populated. I'm talking about Alaska and the base specifically that I'm talking about is Isleson Air Force Base. Join me today as I discuss a serial killer in North Pole, Alaska. Now let's dig in. This story was researched in collaboration with one of my listeners, Stacy. Stacy, thank you so much for your help. My resources for this episode include an investigation discovery TV show titled Ice Cold Killers, specifically season one, episode four, a book by Pete Dove, an article by Robin Bearfield, and articles in the Daily Sitka Sentinel and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. When you think of the North Pole, you may think of the Christmas holiday. Lots of shopping, Christmas trees, mistletoes, stockings over the fireplace, a long line at the mall filled with children and parents waiting to get a picture with Santa Claus. You may think of perfectly snowy weather and flannel pajamas, 
But, you know, us adults, we all know that while Christmas is a time to celebrate the birth of Jesus, Santa Claus isn't, well, you know. I won't say it in case you have little ears nearby, but really, for this story and most of my stories, kids should be wearing earmuffs. Anywho, did you know that there is actually a place in the United States named the North Pole? And I'm not talking about some cheap store in your local mall. No, it's the actual name of a city in Alaska. The North Pole is a small town by all accounts, but they have really embraced all that comes with the name. The city, from everything that I have read, looks like Santa Claus basically threw up on it. They have stores that sell Christmas decor all year round. It has year-round Christmas decorations, and its streets are named after Christmassy things. If you drive down its streets, don't be surprised if you pass Kris Kringle Drive, Mistletoe Lane, St. Nicholas Drive, and Snowman Lane. The North Pole's population is a little over 2,000 people, so it's not big at all. And its closest city is Fairbanks, which is about 20-ish minutes away, give or take. And the population of Fairbanks is 30,000 people, which is still on the small side. There's an Air Force base located near the North Pole, and it's called Isleson Air Force Base. And that's where our story begins today. Glinda Sodeman was both a newlywed and a new mother in August of 1979. Glinda loved strong men. I mean, she was raised by her father, who was an Alaska state trooper. So it's not surprising that she married herself a cute military man, an Air Force man, who was stationed at Isleson Air Force Base. On August 29, 1979, Glinda's husband returned home from work. And when he walked into his home, he discovered his young baby daughter crying bloody murder, as babies do when they're not being tended to. She was in the crib. He looked around for Glinda, but she was nowhere to be found. This was shocking and very unlike Glinda to leave her daughter. So her husband reported Glinda missing. The police came to look around and they didn't suspect anything terrible. They assumed that while Glinda may have looked happy on the outside, that maybe the pressures of newlywed life and motherhood caused her to leave of her own free will. But Glinda's father knew something was wrong. And he just had this inkling, this feeling that Glinda's husband had something to do with her disappearance. I mean, as the saying goes, hashtag the husband did it, right? Well, the police couldn't rule out foul play. So they asked Glinda's husband to take a polygraph test, which he agreed to, but he promptly failed. Bingo. He must have had something to do with it, right? But besides the fact that he failed the test, the police had nothing to go on. While Glinda could very well have met a terrible fate, there was no body, no crime scene. There was no evidence of anything. This grown 19-year-old military spouse and mother just vanished. So her husband remained at large and free to do whatever he needed to do. And Glinda's disappearance remained a mystery. That is until October, weeks after her disappearance, when her fully clothed, decomposing body was discovered near Moose Creek, which is between the North Pole and Isleson Air Force Base. Glinda had been strangled and shot in the head. Officers on scene discovered a 38 caliber pistol cartridge near the crime scene. Now, things were a little different. There was a body and there was a crime scene. Detectives thought for sure the husband did it. He had already failed a polygraph test. In fact, even Glinda's father, Ellis Armstrong, I mean, he was convinced 
that his son-in-law had something to do with his daughter's disappearance. So detectives kept a close eye on the husband. October turned into November, turned into December, and Christmas soon consumed all of the North Pole. And Glinda's case grew colder and colder, just like the outside temperatures. And it was almost as if folks were not too concerned, thinking Glinda's death was, I don't know, the result of a domestic dispute. That is, until June of 1980, when an 11-year-old girl vanished while riding her bicycle in the North Pole. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your cart and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. During the summer of 1980, 11-year-old Doris Orving was full of life. She loved to play the trumpet and sing songs with her friends, and she was just a happy kid. One day after swim lessons, she rode her bicycle home, but she never made it. Doris was quickly reported missing. While Doris didn't have any issues and didn't show any signs of wanting to run away, she was in that age where initially police thought, hey, maybe she left for a while and she'd be back. Even though it was possible Doris did willingly leave, they all went looking for her and it wasn't long before they discovered Doris's bicycle 20 feet from the road in the bushes off of Badger Road. Now, it really did seem as if Doris had been met with foul play. Police get to interviewing everyone and a few people come forward and say that they saw a blue sedan speeding in that vicinity on the day that Doris went missing. But these witnesses weren't the only ones who pinged a blue sedan as a possible lead. Upon interviewing Doris's brother, her brother remembered something odd that occurred just two days before Doris went missing. On June 11th, Doris and her brother were riding bikes together. Doris was riding ahead and her brother Tom was trailing behind. When her brother finally caught up with Doris, Doris was stopped in front of a blue sedan. The owner of the car was standing in front of the vehicle with the hood open 
and he was engaging Doris in conversation. But as soon as the man noticed Doris's brother approaching, he quickly said goodbye, closed the hood, got in the car, and got the hell out of Dodge. This information seemed like a good lead, especially since Doris's bike was found tucked away in a bush along a nearby road. The brother provided a pretty decent description of the man. He said the man had a mustache and had a military haircut. Okay, well, in a military town, this could mean just about anyone back in the 80s. But if you recall, detectives suspected a different military man of a different abduction and murder, Glenda's husband. So they decided to ask Glenda's husband if he had any information about Doris's disappearance. They brought him in again and asked him to submit to a polygraph test, and he willingly did. This time, the results were even murkier than before. The results were inconclusive. Okay, what? According to Robin Bearfield, an Alaskan wilderness mystery author, troopers decided to bring in an expert polygrapher. Glinda's husband voluntarily took a third polygraph, and within minutes of that polygraph exam, the expert exited the room, shaking his head. He told detectives that the man, Glinda's husband, had a heart murmur. There was no way that he'd ever pass a polygraph test. And without the polygraph, there was no evidence pointing to this man being the suspect, besides the fact that he was the first victim's husband. Detectives were back to the drawing board, but it wouldn't be long until another woman would vanish from those very streets. In January of 1981, seven months after Doris's disappearance, 20-year-old Marlene Peters was hitchhiking from Fairbanks to Anchorage in an attempt to visit her father who had cancer. Marlene never made it to see her father, though. She was reported missing, but police didn't tie this disappearance to any of the others. She was hitchhiking for one, and a multitude of things could have occurred to Marlene between Fairbanks and Anchorage. But then, in March of 1981, almost a year after Doris's disappearance, 16-year-old Wendy Wilson also vanished. Wendy had been hanging out with a friend when she decided to walk to her boyfriend's house. Wendy and her friend were walking along when her friend decided, hey, I don't want to go to your boyfriend's house. So she turned around. Wendy continued on her journey. After Wendy vanished, Wendy's friend actually recalled Wendy getting into a white pickup truck in Moose Creek. So this vehicle description was given to the police. But while Doris and Marlene were still just missing persons, Wendy's case quickly turned from a missing persons case to a murder case when her body was discovered. Just like Linda, Wendy had been strangled and shot in the face. In fact, her face had been nearly blown off with a shotgun. After Wendy was discovered, detectives had a gut-wrenching feeling they had a serial killer on their hands. And while the word serial killer wasn't widely used back then, all the signs pointed to the same killer, except for one thing. Doris had allegedly been abducted in what they believed to be a blue sedan, while Wendy was last seen going into a white pickup truck. Was there one serial killer with two cars? Were there two serial killers working separately in this small area? Or was there a serial killer team? (music) 
It was now May of 1981. In the last 22 months, this small area had four disappearances of young ladies, and three of them had turned out to be murders. Detectives were on edge. The town was on edge. And it seemed that every time they tried to get ahead of the situation, another woman went missing. This time, it was an 18-year-old by the name of Lori King. She had just vanished. Now, it's unclear to me how police expanded their team, but at this point, it was all hands on deck. Various organizations teamed up to find Lori King. Even the military was involved, but the group of people who were looking for the young lady never found her. It was four unsuspecting military men who were hunting near Isleson Air Force Base who made the gruesome discovery and called it in. Lori King was found dead on the military installation. Detectives felt defeated. When would these murders end and would the person responsible ever be caught? Because Lori King's body was discovered on a military installation, the FBI now joined the team of investigators. According to the coverage of this case in Ice Cold Killers, a documentary on investigation discovery, one of the detectives on the case then went down to Georgia to learn more about serial killer profiling from the FBI. For any Mindhunter fans, you know that during this time, the FBI was developing what we now know as criminal profiling, where you take a person's crimes and you try to reverse engineer the information to determine characteristics of the criminal that you're looking for. Remember, back in the early 80s, there were no databases where different jurisdictions could kind of share information with each other. Anyway, the information from the five disappearances and the four murders were analyzed and the criminal profiler guessed that the killer they were looking for was a single man, kind of a loner, likely a civilian versus a military man, and a person who couldn't hold down a steady job. Armed with this information and with the fact that the killer liked to dump the bodies in a certain radius from Isleson Air Force Base, detectives set up shop in a perimeter around the dumping ground. They were hopeful to spot either the blue sedan or the white truck, but their efforts bore no fruit. In fact, it was then that the murders just stopped. This could only mean a few things, right? Their killer had either been arrested, he had died, or he had moved away. Of course, the serial killer could have just stopped killing, but that seemed unlikely. Hmm. Now, I want to stop right there. I'm not sure if it's because I'm connected to the military and I'm aware that military personnel move often, or maybe it's because I know the ending of this story. But it seems like a no-brainer that the person responsible for these abductions or murders could be a military member or someone connected to the military. And guess what? Military people move all the time, especially during the summer. And remember, Lori King had vanished in May of 81. And then after her, the killer went radio silent. Well, remember the few eyewitness sightings the detectives did have? They had a sketch from Doris's brother, and they also had the description of two vehicles seen approaching two of the missing girls, one blue car and one white truck. Detectives soon went to Isleson Air Force Base officials, even though the profile said it wasn't a military person. Well, they didn't care. They were like, we need to keep our minds open. Let's go to Isleson Air Force Base and see what we can get. Well, they asked Air Force officials to see any information on all blue cars and white trucks with access to the military installation. 
They also requested a list of all personnel that had recently PCS, aka moved to a different military installation. They were hopeful that if their serial killer was military, maybe they could pinpoint who had recently moved and maybe started killing in a new location. And the detective's hard work would pay off. Thankfully, they were not uber convinced that the original FBI criminal profile was correct. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. The detectives on the case actually sent a bulletin to all local authorities located near Air Force bases in the United States. They needed help solving four murders and one abduction, and they were really trying anything. In the bulletin, it basically said, if you have any murders that meet the following criteria, please let us know. The criteria was as follows. A murdered young female found fully clothed, not sexually assaulted, who had died by strangulation and shot in the head. They were attempting to raise awareness so that if any similar cases occurred near their military installations, the two agencies would talk. And wouldn't you know it, in November of 1982, thousands of miles away in Henrietta, Texas, 22-year-old Cassandra Goodwin was murdered. And her murder was eerily similar to those in Alaska. She had been strangled and shot in the head. Detectives were now eager to cross-check their list of white truck owners with blue car owners with persons who had recently PCS. And when they did, alarm bells went off when they got to a name that showed up on all three lists. A technical sergeant by the name of Thomas Richard Bunday. He often went by Rich. He had not only recently PCS from Isleson Air Force Base to Shepherd Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas, but he owned both a blue sedan and a white pickup truck. Well, I'll be darned. And for those of you wondering, Shepherd Air Force Base is but 25 miles from Henrietta, Texas, where Cassandra Goodwin's body was recently discovered. Alaska detectives quickly haul ass to Texas, where they meet the Henrietta folks who declare that they have found their murderer. They believe that Cassandra's murderer was a drug dealer who is now dead. They claim, hey, listen, our case is open and shut. But 
Alaska detectives knew that wasn't the truth. They felt like this case was almost identical to theirs. And since they were now local, they paid Thomas Bunday a visit. When questioned about the Alaska murders, Bunday denied everything. He refused to take a polygraph and refused to provide a DNA sample. And while this is not the end-all be-all, this was the first time during this investigation that anyone had declined to provide these. So detectives dug deeper. They were relentless. They flew back to Alaska and provided a photo lineup to Doris's brother, who quickly both picked out Bunday and his blue sedan out of a lineup of images, saying, this is the guy who was talking to my sister two days before she went missing. Bingo! Now, detectives were sure Bunday was their guy, but how would they get him since he was now in Texas and that is outside their jurisdiction? Well, on March 7th, 1983, Alaska State Troopers paid Bunday another visit and they asked him to come down to meet with them in their makeshift office in a local hotel. Now, Bunday willingly went and he was eager to chat with troopers and listen to them. He was super friendly, but he didn't provide any information. Troopers were stunned that Bunday kept coming back every day to chat with them because would an innocent person continue to meet with police in this manner? Wouldn't they just be like, please leave me alone. I have nothing to do with this case. Trooper Jim McCain told IDTV's Ice Cold Killers that for three days, three hours at a time each day, he just talked to Bunday. He was doing this in an attempt to break him into admitting what he had done. And interestingly, they never got a flat denial from Bunday, but he was mum. You're probably wondering, what is the deal with these three hour time limits every day? Like, just keep him there all day. Well, Trooper McCain said that their technology was so bad that they could only record in three hour increments. So after three hours, they had to cut Bunday loose and just hope and pray that this guy, possible serial killer, would return the following day to talk to them. Now, can you imagine how helpless these detectives must have felt to, I don't know, cut a potential serial killer loose at the end of each day? Well, one day, Bunday showed up at the door with a note. He handed it off to the detectives and he walked off. The letter was a denial. He basically said, I didn't kill those girls. But according to the detectives, the letter was very shallow and brief. Troopers knew they were running out of time, so they obtained a search warrant and went to Bunday's house in Burke Burnett, hopeful that they would find something connecting him to the North Pole murders. And it is here during this search that things get real. Turns out that Bunday liked to keep paper clippings from the Alaska abductions and murders. Mind you, he now lives in Texas and he's holding on to Alaska papers with pictures of the missing girls on the front. But listen, that isn't all. They also find shotgun cartridges that match those left at some of the crime scenes. But due to some jurisdictional concerns, the Alaskan detectives were powerless over Bunday in Texas. Alaskan authorities worked diligently to obtain an arrest warrant while Texas troops are standing guard outside of Bunday's house. Alaskan troopers can almost taste the victory. They have solved a serial killer case. After the search of Bundy's house, according to that episode of Ice Cold Killers I mentioned, Alaska state troopers get a call from Bundy. 
he believes that they have accidentally taken his vehicle keys during the search of his home. Now, Bundy agrees to meet with them the following morning. And when Bundy shows up, things are different than before. Bundy is talking. They start by telling Bundy that Doris's family, the only missing girl in the bunch, they just want closure. They want to lay her to rest, but they can't do that without her body. And Bundy at this point breaks down and cries. He then draws them a map indicating where they can find Doris's body. And he agrees to help them find her when they return to Alaska. He then confesses to all five North Pole murders, but he refuses to confess to the Texas murder of Cassandra. Eventually, that Alaskan arrest warrant is issued, but all jurisdictional hurdles are not yet resolved because Alaska state troopers cannot arrest someone in Texas. But they believe they have figured it out when the Alaska governor provides them with a private jet to fly them directly to Alaska. But the kicker is Bundy must go voluntarily. And guess what? Bundy agrees to do so. Bundy promises them that he will meet them the following morning. But just like everything else in this case, it's not that simple. Even though Bundy agreed to voluntarily return to Alaska, he would never do so. That morning, instead of meeting with Alaskan state troopers, Bundy evaded the Texas police guarding his house by leaving on a motorcycle. And Bundy does the most peculiar thing. He drops off his taxes at a local H&R block and then he takes off on the highway, but he wouldn't make it far. At roughly 3.15 p.m., about 50 miles west of Shepard Air Force Base in Vernon, Texas, while on a highway speeding at 100 miles per hour, Bundy crossed the center line and slammed head on into a dump truck. Bundy was thrown some 300 feet from his motorcycle, and according to reporting by the Daily Sitka Sentinel, he died from a fractured skull, even though he was wearing a helmet. Alaskan detectives get the call. Richard Bundy would not be returning to Alaska with them. Now, at this point, this may seem like closure to many of you, but it isn't, at least not yet. It's not until a few weeks later after DNA results confirm that Wendy Wilson's hair was in Bundy's truck and they discover that the shell casings at two of the crime scenes match the shells that he has at home. That's when everyone can rest easy knowing a serial killer was now dead. Sadly, though, it would take a few more years, three years to be exact, for Doris's family to get any closure at all. According to reporting by the Daily Sitka Sentinel, Doris's skull was found on Eielson Air Force Base in August of 1986, six years after she went missing. So who the hell is this Bundy guy anyway? According to author Pete Dove, Bundy was born into a home where the father was a military man, the mother was an abused housewife, and the only sibling he had was 15 years his senior. Bundy's father had served during World War II and likely suffered from what we know today to be post-traumatic stress disorder. Bundy Sr. was a piece of work and he was extremely abusive. 
And Bunday Jr. was exposed to all of that behavior day in and day out. So it's not surprising that when Bunday Sr. died, when Bunday Jr. was only 15 years old, Bunday refused to attend the funeral. He even ran away for a few days to make sure that they wouldn't force him to go. By all accounts, Bunday stayed out of trouble for the most part. And as soon as he turned 18 years old, he married his high school sweetheart and then joined the Air Force. But the military soon separated the young couple when Bunday was deployed to Asia. While he was deployed, his wife had an affair and fell pregnant with a son. She had the son. And of course, this would strain any relationship. But upon Bunday's return, the couple stayed together and they soon welcomed a daughter together. Okay, so now let's discuss how wrong the criminal profile was on this guy, okay? Turns out he had been in the Air Force for 15 years, so he was clearly capable of keeping a job, unlike the criminal profile had indicated. You know, he was 33 years old and he was married and had two children, whereas the criminal profile on him said that he would be single, a loner, and really wouldn't have much interactions with other people and wouldn't be able to hold down a job. But listen, he was a POS, to be honest. And while he was able to keep a job, once you hear what I'm about to say, it's unclear why. But maybe it's because it was the 80s and people didn't take sexual harassment as serious as they do today. Bunday was actually known around his office for being extremely disrespectful towards women. He was sexually harassing them. And one female airman was actually afraid of him. But for some ungodly reason, this guy was allowed to roam the ranks in the Air Force for far too long. While Alaskan authorities were able to close the chapter on this serial killer in March of 1983, just three months later in June, Alaskan authorities in Anchorage would get a lead that would eventually help them capture a different serial killer who had been killing in the area for over 12 years. This story, next time on Military Murder. I'm going to be honest with you right now. When one of my listeners brought Thomas Bunday to my attention, I thought they had it wrong. I was like, no, no, no. It's not Thomas Bunday. It's Ted Bundy. <laughs> but clearly I was wrong. I cannot believe I had never heard of this guy. And just like Ronald Gray, this serial killer was on active duty while he committed his murders. That is so insane to me. All right, y'all, don't forget to tune in next week where I will cover another Alaskan serial killer. Until then, make sure that you're following me on social media on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and hire fan club members. This week's newest assistant producers are Shanice R. and Kylie B. Our newest associate producer is Ricardo G., our executive producers are Ryan R., Alicia H., Falcon 13, Nicole H., and Tina S., owner of Stitcher 6 to 6 Embroidery. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. 
You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Podcast.